0: Hey guys, what are some characters you see in every D&D campaign? I guess a kleptomaniac rogue in modern day outfit?
1: How about a villain who chews up all this scenery and wants to amass tons of power for no apparent reason?
2: What about a boring human fighter with no personality who is still for some reason the
0: leader? Or a bumbling dwarf that always is drunk and has food in his beard?
1: And you can't forget the iconic Elvin Ranger.
2: Is this movie accidentally the best D&D movie of all time?
1: My God.
2: Satirists, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the fantasy podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokol, here with my co-hosts and fellow adventurers.
0: It's Jack, your boy, a doppelganger that has yet to be caught.
1: And it's Chelsea Hollowell, a uh, plucky mage in training. Nice. <laughs>
2: Well, everybody, we have quite an outstanding show for you today, I hope, because we watched what may be the accidental greatest Dungeons & Dragons movie of all time, 2000's Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Very simple title.
2: (laughs) Well, it tells you pretty much everything you should expect from it, except
1: are there any dungeons in this movie?
2: There's a lot of dragons.
1: There's a dungeon. There's definitely a dungeon. We'll be getting back to that later. Fair enough. Yeah.
2: Well, um, yeah, this is this is quite a movie. Uh, I think we're, we've got a lot to uh, say about this one, but before we get into the meat and potatoes, as it were, I think Chelsea has a little summary for all of you. if In case you haven't seen this movie in a while, which is a crime, you should definitely go out and watch this movie right now.
1: Oh, yeah. I I highly recommend it.
0: (laughs) I'm sure everyone has seen this movie quite recently. This is one of the films you sit down with your family and watch monthly, right? Yeah.
1: This is part of our modern zeitgeist, for sure. Absolutely.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, look at how popular D&D is today. I'm sure it has something to do with this movie. Do
0: they fight a zeitgeist in the film?
2: <laughs> we'll have to find I, out. Well, there's no clerics, so I don't know if they might have a hard time fighting that a zeitgeist. That might cause trying an on dead.
1: existential crisis. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, so here comes the summary. So, Dungeons and Dragons. This is a tale of two young thieves who join an unlikely group of adventurers on a quest to procure a magical artifact. Called the Scepter of Savinia. Which grants the wielder the power to control red dragons.
0: Specifically red dragons. Why not all the chromatic dragons? No, that's too evil. Yes. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, and, you know, who wouldn't want to be able to do something like that? Control dragons.
0: I—that That is basically everything I live for. <laughs> I would make them talk through all their problems and live... In a harmonious society of dragons.
2: And then make them fight to the death for your enjoyment? Oh, yeah, that'd be so
0: cool. To hell with the peace thing.
1: (laughs) It's the way they can die with honor.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) That makes sense.
1: Okay, so the hapless adventurers bumble their way through social encounters and skirmishes along their journey. But handle traps and heroic flips like a boss.
2: Like I said, just like a real D&D campaign. They do so many flips. (laughs) It's a lot of flips. This is a flippy movie.
1: And a poorly written political plot is foisted upon the would-be heroes who must go against class and alignment types to move the story along and fight for no less than the freedom of their city-state of Izmir.
2: Which is a majocracy, or majocracy, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, I have I have a lot to say about the political structure of the world in this movie, but you know we'll get to that in a little bit here.
1: So that is the much abridged and conden- you know the condensed version of the plot for your benefit let me tell you (laughs) because everyone's
2: already
0: seen the movie so many times it would just be redundant
1: Exactly.
0: and if they haven't by now they could surely pause at this exact moment watch it and then listen to the themes
1: yeah so um yeah I think this is the time when we should go in and talk about our themes well, the movie.
2: I think the probably the biggest theme of this movie is class warfare. Struggle between the upper and lower classes is pretty much present throughout the entire film.
1: They pretty much hit you over the head with it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got these two young uh, kind of, uh, well, what's a good word for them? Rogues, obviously, in the D&D parlance, or ne'er-do-wells, I suppose. Well, they
1: were self-professed thieves. Sure. <laughs> I
2: mean, yeah, they're they're going back to the old school days of, of D&D when, yeah. you know, thief was a class. But, right. you know,
0: we use a much more politically correct rogue now. Mm-hmm. Though it doesn't seem like they entirely understand life as a thief. That is true. For multiple times when they run into other people of the same profession, they bring up this idea of honor among thieves. which. Right is their downfall in almost every situation.
2: Yeah, we find out that that that's basically just their um, kind of rose-colored glasses view of their own vocation, when every other thief in the world's like, no, we're gonna just backstab the fuck out of you as soon as you've done what we want. Like,
0: there's no honor. You (laughs) fell for that? You fell for that honor amongst thieves things? No wonder you're still poor. (laughs) I have a trap dungeon. a gauntlet.
1: Yeah, actually the character that says that basically says you cannot have honor if you have amassed a lot of wealth.
2: Xylus, one of my favorite characters in the whole movie. He was really he really stood out to me. He had a great personality. I like he had a good sense of humor. I appreciated what he was all about.
1: I think that was um that line also applied to the mages who are the upper class in Izmir, and oh yeah, absolutely. and they're the they're the nobility and upper class. You can't. It didn't seem like you could really earn your way into their ranks. It just seemed like you had to be born into it.
2: Well, it's. I mean, so one of the characters that you get that we get introduced to early on and who kind of becomes a member of this party is Marina, the mage, and her one of the very you know the not one of the very first things she says but something that she says to ridley the main question mark character of the movie i guess he's the main character but she basically uh says you know she looks down on commoners because of how he acts and and she uses that as uh, as confirmation bias to say oh well you know this is why you commoners are below us mages because you always act so uncivilized and Obviously, very problematic uh, stance. She very, uh, She's coming from a place of great privilege, being a, yeah. an educated member of the majocracy and, and all this.
1: She obviously has bought into the hegemonic narrative that all mages are intelligent and deserve their place above everyone else. And everyone else in the lower classes is there because they are lesser somehow.
0: Yeah. And it seems like every other mage, except for maybe one who dies off, believes the same thing. Because when the villain, uh, what's his name? Profion. Jeremy Profion Irons. Yes. When he's standing in front of the Council of Mages, right, trying to overthrow the Empress... He is so clearly evil, and every he talks like this. <laughs> she is a child. We can't have a child running the empire. Is is
2: Jeremy Irons here in the room with us? Yes.
1: Right. <laughs> And he Ollie chewed his, up so much
0: scenery in this movie. Just nom nom <laughs> nom <it's> nom. true. <laughs> and every other mage can clearly see how evil he is.
2: Yeah. And
0: they're so on board. Yeah they're so yeah. on board. They all grunt and they're... they slam their staves on the ground. More power for us and no power for the commoners. And then the empress is like oh I think people should be equal and then he's like hmm pretty childish right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean what a, what a bold political statement they're making here. The Empress fighting for equality and, and believing that all people are created equal and then this just dastardly, snidely whiplash villain that Jeremy Irons is playing.
1: You kind of remind me of another theme throughout the movie is equality versus control or tyranny. Yeah. And it has to do with, those are basically the two Political camps, uh,
2: tyranny and uh, and freedom.
1: Yeah, <laughs> freedom and equality, or tyranny and control. Yeah. Uh, that the upper classes could kind of be filed into one or the other. <laughs> oh, and, and the interesting, um, they were themes throughout the movie as well.
2: The interesting thing to me is that Ridley is strongly aware of this class divide. He literally says that the government is designed only to benefit the mages, and he's absolutely right. I mean, the the main character is is really hitting on this, uh, you know, he, he, he seems to be very aware that it's not, uh, you know, he, he seems to be aware of the problems that exist in any uh, great inequality of, you know, any, any government system that is filled with inequality is that it's not the people who are often blamed, the common folk who are responsible for these problems, it's the people in power who are creating laws and rules that keep people below them, below them.
1: And that is, he sees the truth of the kind of political and social mechanisms that keep social classes where they are, or are designed to anyway. Well, the mage character, the mage apprentice, uh, Marina, Marina can't see that because she's bought into the narrative, like I was saying.
0: Mm -hmm. And it doesn't help that all all the commoners we meet in this film are either thieves, criminals, or... A dwarf who has a hut made out of garbage in the street. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought yeah. that up, because I wanted to talk
2: about our friend Elwood the Dwarf. I mean, I was... Obviously, besides the, the classism that these people were facing, there seems to be a great deal of racism between uh, the fantasy races. And, I mean, I think that's one of the best illustrations of that is Elwood's hut is right next to a sign that says, "No No Dwarves Allowed. And I wasn't sure if that. I'm, I'm assuming that wasn't a sign he put up as a, like a, a form of self-loathing. He seemed like a pretty proud dwarf. I think that he that there was a sign that was put up there that that for some reason denies dwarves access to this area. I, I don't know what this uh, country has against dwarves specifically, and of course here we're talking about the fantasy D&D dwarves. But he seems to be making a bold political statement by sleeping right next to the sign and just in, in absolute, you know, flaunting the law, just... Old face.
0: We aren't talking about like using discarded like tent material or like planks of wood to no. make a little hut in the street. It's like an igloo made out of like shit. Yeah, it was like
2: <laughs> it's like cabbage and carrots
0: and all kinds yeah, of yeah. It's mostly just crap. like, Thrown out refuse held together by feces. That means, <laughs> but you know what? Dome. That's home to him. And yeah. it he's leads
1: directly into the sewers. Does it? Yeah. Oh, That's that how they sense. escape from the guards They, uh, when they're trying to get away from being framed for a mage's murder. Um, they dive through his hut, and they just go right into the pipes that lead to the sewers.
0: They make all their death-saving throws after touching the hut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, constitution saves. Yeah, exactly. And they're just like,
1: "Ooh, thank god we made it into the sewers. <laughs> it's way better than a hut.
0: He
2: does some Pretty gross stuff with some other characters. At one point, he wants to get a seat at the bar, so doesn't he uh, like just remove a halfling? That is, or is actually that, or is that snails. snails? Okay. Yes, yeah, snails, snails sees we were the Elden Ranger. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was that was just just lifting bodily this halfling off of yes. the seat,
0: which is two very realistic player character things happen right there. He spots an attractive elf, but he was immediately just like, Ooh, gotta go flirt with him, right? Gotta go hit on him. So he goes down to hit on them, and then that's when he just like yoinks the halfling off the seat and tosses him aside. Yeah. To hit on this he person.
1: He does kind of throw him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very careless.
2: I mean, halflings are known for their dexterity, but I'm not sure that that was but the. But he
1: doesn't treat the halfling like a person.
2: No, it was horrible.
1: It was. So you guys are making me think that we should kind of lay out that while the movie does lay out all of these like and kind of define class struggles and social hierarchies uh, and the inherent kind of unfairness that is built into that those systems, uh, they just flagrantly have racist and. Sexist dialogue and actions throughout the entire movie. Oh, yeah. And it's just kind of like hand waved over the entire time.
2: Elwood like, literally says. The treatment
1: of like class struggles, uh, socio political struggles, it does not excuse. Any of that.
2: (laughs) No, I mean, I think that they were, you know, they were trying to make a a bold statement, obviously. I mean, with an art film like this, but, uh, you know, they might not have succeeded on all parts. I mean, Elwood literally says that all dwarves, I'm sorry, all elves look alike to him.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: That was,
2: that that shook me. There's
1: the the halfling (laughs) that's just thrown all the racist stuff that's said against dwarves or elves, because other people just say, like, dwarves are dirty, and... They're unintelligent and stuff like that. But these are all kind of portrayals of different races that can happen in a D&D campaign.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely I mean I think that these are kind of the archetypal uh, character traits that most role players kind of lean on.
1: So it's kind of like it shows the noble pursuits and the ugly side of any D&;D campaign mm-hmm. as it could come up.
0: I'd also like to draw a quick parallel on this note to Willow. In one of the previous episodes, when he, when Snails picked up the halfling and tossed him aside, yeah. I shouted, out of the way, peck! Oh. Which is a line from Willow. Yeah. And there's a similar discrimination in both films against the small races. Yeah. yeah. Which I have encountered in most campaigns. People are like, oh, they're so small. <laughs> Or when someone is playing a dwarf, they're like, oh, good luck keeping up with your five feet lower move speed. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, that's pretty terrible. It
0: happens. And uh, the media has not been an exception to that. Both of these fantasy films have shown discrimination against the shorter races. Maybe that'd be realistic, but I think that's also a very and, Western and to way to, to look sure at it. And to make
1: sure that people understand, you're, you're speaking as, as the little people as a race because... In the movies, they are actually a separate race. Right. This is yeah. this
2: is recreating the worlds of Dungeons and Dragons, where yeah. you know that that includes fantasy races that we do not have in our world: elves and dwarves, halflings, and dragonborn, and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Beholders are a little bit of representation in this movie, but
1: so the scepter of Savina.
2: Yeah, Let's which talk is actually—it's
1: it. the one that can control red dragons. It's named after the Empress.
2: Is it, or is that just a coincidence? I—I I was not clear on that. Just a common name, you know. Could it be. wasn't
1: actually explained. It could be like the um, staff
2: of Susan in their world. Oh
1: well, yeah. So it has the power to control red dragons. Um, apparently. That that ties into another theme of uh, destiny and the chosen one, like every other freaking fantasy movie.
2: Uh, I was gonna say, like every other movie in this milieu, <laughs> uh, it's part of the bingo. Yeah, yeah. So,
1: uh, Jeremy Irons as thinks that it's his destiny to control the scepter and take over Izmir. Um, but it turns out how convenient. Out, <laughs> it turns out that. It is um, Ridley's destiny for some reason or another. Is it? it that's <laughs> what he's told by the scroll.
2: The scroll! Uh-huh. Well, now, is that in the cut scene? Or it, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so we watched one of the deleted scenes that kind of fills in one of the most important blanks in the movie, which is where Ridley and Marina go when they're transported into the scroll. Yeah. And they're, like, inside this... Like, disco ball scroll room, was which actually, was actually pretty cool.
1: Cool, yeah. It was kind of a neat scene. It only lasted three minutes or so, so I'm not really sure why they cut it, because it seemed pretty important.
2: I feel like it added some much-needed context to
0: the, the main storyline. Yeah. And so much character development in one very tight scene. He's They get into the scroll because Ridley, not Marina, knows the magical... Incantation for getting inside the scroll, and, he and he's just to a piece. He just
1: kind of intuitively know it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, oh, that's right. And she's incredulous about this. Yeah, and when they're in there, she's like, "How'd you do that?" And he explains how his dad was a great inventor, but since he wasn't an official mage, he was basically just shit on his entire life. Must have been an alchemist or an artificer. Yeah, exactly. And they Renly said that was, his
1: yeah. mind was wiped. Oh. His memories were
0: great. oh yeah so sad yeah, yeah. and Ridley is actually so, he's a very smart guy and he is he's very talented for this sort of thing he's clever throughout the film he figures things out oh the the scene where he's in the
2: the trap gauntlet I mean that was really fun he's he's jumping up on swinging blades and having a good time he's entertaining the crowd he's really working the. The crowd and everything. So
1: that is one of the two dungeons that are in the movie.
2: Was it a dungeon, though? I mean, it was kind of like more of a, of a fighting pit, but with traps. Well, I didn't understand the geometry of that room.
1: I, it didn't make sense. It seemed like... It, okay, so it was part of the Thieves' Guild they go to. It's when they're trying to get the gem that's supposed to go... That opens the door to another dungeon that will have the scepter in it. So... The, they learn that the thieves' guild has it, and they go. And the leader of that guild tells them that they have one of them has to make it through this gauntlet to get to the gem, and then they can take it with them. And the whole thing just seems to be a way to entertain his guild.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you have to keep your your you know your your people happy. Yeah. But I mean, that is a diversion technique by the powerful to keep the masses kind of controlled and entertained, right? I mean that's classic yeah. like narrative structure device.
1: It it keeps them entertained and passive so that they won't think about how shitty he is probably.
2: <laughs> I mean yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I liked uh He's Zylus one of the a sexist
1: lot. the most sexist characters.
2: Fair fair point. I, I didn't didn't love that. I, I liked He's his general characterization.
1: Hits, um Marina on the ass.
2: Right. Okay. Well that's that's not cool.
1: I found that to be really offensive, and it was an awkward moment in terms of acting as well, because the... Yeah, I don't
2: know if they planned
0: that.
1: It didn't look like it. I was about to say, just that.
0: Well, there was a very good actor in this film, who I believed was very genuine. Everyone else seemed kind of like they were role-playing a character, which is very D&D, but the one dude who was so immersed was Damodar. Oh, oh, yeah. The henchman, right? Who, if I'm not mistaken, is the the character who comes back in the sequel. You're right. But uh, Damodar, throughout the whole thing, has some parasites which were magically put into his body. Well, Damodar, throughout the film, gets continually worse in condition as his ears and neck yeah. and top of his bald head get these bright red veins while you can see it. Yeah.
1: His ears his ear were infection. burning, but yeah. people were talking about him all the time. Just, I mean, how could yeah. you not?
0: It's true. And when he was in pain because his master was like conjuring up the parasites to come out of his ears, it you he seemed like he was in a torturous agony.
1: He was Many, one of the best actors in the movie. Yeah, he was. Oh, he good. was great. I,
0: I like that
2: guy. I like everybody in this. And movie. to
1: your point, Jack, I think you make a really good point. Thinking back on it, I think he is the one who seems to take. The whole world and said like plot and the story of the movie like the most seriously like he's actually the one who seems like he belongs in the whole. Oh, he he
2: gives it some gravitas
0: for sure. Also, his character is the most like morally conflicted. I think he likes the Empress. He mentions he's like I don't want the Empress to be overthrown, but Prothean is that his name? Yeah, Yeah, Prothean. Prothean. Has, like, basically control over me. I don't remember exactly why. Maybe he had yeah, his family on hold, or that, maybe he didn't mention.
2: Or maybe just because he works for him and he knows, where you know, where his bread's
0: getting buttered. Yeah, but it seemed like there was some reason he was doing this against his will. But he chose, or at least reluctantly, but he seems sad kind of at times where he has to fight the party. The main yeah, fair. I
2: mean, I don't know if he seems sad. I think he kind of, I think he's happy to to engage in any combat. He's that's true. That's true. He's
0: an angry fellow. Uh, he's a pro. Yeah, I guess more it would. It's not his preference to fight them, or he it's not his like preference. He
1: seems like he's grim about it.
0: Yeah, he's yes. he's
2: not like evil by vocation or you know by uh, choice necessarily. He's just evil by vocation.
0: Maybe circumstantial. Too. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. He he has a lot of subtlety. Yeah, it's to true. To the character. It's true. You know, there's another character I want to talk about who... Uh, I, I was so happy to see this character that I was basically right out of one of my D&D campaigns, which is the old uh, elf cleric or druid. Yeah, Who's just a total stoner and who's yeah. like... I, I loved they. they this is one of the times when they really go against type. And I thought that... Well, not totally against type. But they picked somebody who has very much not a traditional elven body type. A kind of a, a huskier, older gent, and uh, he was just outstanding. He's like this stoned-out mage healer. Uh, healer, who and Maria's like, "What? What is this magic? I've never even seen healing magic, which in the and D world is super common." So I guess you know the mage school. I mean, I mean, you know, now it's possible we haven't talked about this before, but we could get into this. Is Ismir a mageocracy and? Do they have some kind of uh, restriction against divine magic? Maybe healing magic really is rare in in their kingdom.
1: It seems like every time she casts magic, she's either using an artifact or somatic components of some type.
2: Well, she had to have a, a component pouch.
1: Yeah. So the only time we see divine magic is when that elf is using it.
2: Yeah, so I'm wondering if maybe Izmir is uh, suppressing divine magic and and worship of, you know, uh, the gods and stuff.
1: It's possible because uh, they control the city through dragons. So (laughs) I don't think it's a very nice place to live.
2: Probably not. But yeah, this elf, old stoner elf guy, great character, totally dug
0: that. Yeah, the druid was pretty sick. He had like all the jolliness of Santa Claus in the body of like a large canvas sack of flour, which <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of the best. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, he started going on about how like you mages use magic, we elves are magic. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes. Which is just a bullshit excuse because he's just a. Like, Druid who worships like Sylvanas or another nature god, and he's like, "Oh yeah, it's totally the elf thing." It's like, "No, it's a class feature, dude." He was
1: so high, <laughs> he <laughs> he started waxing uh, poetical about how dragons create magic and how they have to destroy the rod or the scepter when they find it because it would kill the dragon somehow. And yeah, not clear. The fact yeah, it was very unclear. And then the fabric of magic would be broken.
0: Yeah, that's right. Instead of a magical weave in this world, or maybe there is a magical weave, but the dragons seem very closely tied to that, he explains that each dragon that dies kind of messes up the flow of magic in the world.
2: That's interesting. Yeah.
0: And he's like, oh, we gotta maintain the balance. You know, the staves are evil. If the dragons kill each other, it's unnatural. And, like, nature will... Be like in peril because of it, and that was kind of cool. I wonder what that's all about.
2: So talking about the staff actually segues into another character that I was really impressed with. Another great example of the of the subtle storytelling of this world, the lich who has the scepter. Yes, fantastic portrayal. Great lawful evil. Loved it. He's he he has you know Ridley shows up in his. Uh, in his treasure hoard.
1: Well, that's in the second dungeon after they get there later in the movie. I guess you'd yeah. call
2: that a dungeon, sure.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Okay, so this movie has both dungeons
0: and dragons. Oh, you're right. About the chosen one thing? Because Ridley is the only one who can go inside this dungeon. There's an right. invisible barrier uh, that I keeps everyone that. else out. And they're like, oh, I guess this party-based game, there's a protagonist now. <laughs> Maybe it's one of those single-player d video
2: games, actually. Oh! <laughs>
0: I hope not, but sense. maybe. <laughs> uh,
2: but I, I love that lich. That was such a great portrayal. He's yes. clearly, uh, you know, an evil undead of some kind, but he has no ill will. He, he's not, you know, he's not violent towards Ridley or anything. He's Kind of just like, oh yeah, you can totally have this uh, this staff, but you know you should be wary about how you use it. You know, power can corrupt, yeah. and obviously, living well, unliving example of that. The yeah. ultimate unliving example of power corrupting yeah. is the Lich.
1: He said the dragons cursed him to live a, a long life until somebody else would come to claim the scepter from him.
0: Yeah, and he acknowledged how the staff. Or the scepter that he made, the what it does and the act of creating it was really evil.
1: Yeah.
0: And he didn't seem to regret that, but he was just kind of informing Ridley of the danger. And I think his biggest regret was just that he messed, that he didn't succeed, not that he did it. Yeah. And I should uh,
2: clarify here: I don't actually think this character was a lich. I just use that to uh, kind of describe the the. General type of portrayal, but I think it was more right. just of a, like a some kind of other long-lived undead um, revenant or something. Right. The,
1: so there is something I want to come back to uh, with the theme of equality versus control that I brought up earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not explicitly stated that the opposite side of equality would be tyranny. It's it's stated that uh, so it's Profian who's Convincing the mages council that they need to maintain control over the city and they need to provide security for themselves. So that's how he convinces them that those are that's the language he uses to convince them that they should take control from the empress and he's the one who's kind of leading all of them. And in his mind, he would be le- like controlling all of Izmir. Um, right. He thinks he's
2: the most qualified.
1: The other side to that is that the queen w- wants to declare that everyone is equal and she wants everyone in her city state to be equal neither one of their ultimate goals makes any sense because they don't explain what they mean or what they plan to do with either of their goals wh- if they were to achieve them
2: well i mean they're politicians of course they don't they're <laughs> they're just speaking to you know their base and in this case the empress is doing a bad job because she's talking to the Council of Mages who are, are never going to buy into the idea of giving non-mages power. So
1: Yeah, so Profian just wants to control the Red Dragons and it's very unclear what he plans to do after that.
2: Yeah, I mean, Profian's a populist who just knows how to stir up his base. Mm-hmm. And
1: then um, with the Empress, she just wants to declare everyone equal, but it's never explained like what will come of that. What are the like social, political, or economic implications that would come as a part of everybody being declared equal? It it it, it seems like an empty promise. I,
2: I hear what you're saying, and I totally agree. This movie did need thirty to sixty more minutes of detailed <laughs> political planning. Yes. yes, that was that was the thing that was like missing from making this the perfect
1: film. That's what everyone loved about Star Wars Episode One.
2: Exactly trade negotiations. Let's get into the details about how these systems are going to be implemented when the new people are elected. Exactly.
1: Well, that's
0: my point. You see my point. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Everyone loves the Trade Federation and the Gungans and wants to know their thoughts. Yeah, I mean
2: we, we figured that out a few weeks ago when we talked about Willow. I mean, what a brilliant mind George Lucas was to, to start implementing this deep nuanced discussion of politics and socioeconomics. You're right.
1: So one of the other things I think we have to talk about is the CGI.
2: I thought you were going to say the oatmeal carpet.
1: That's part of it. I was <laughs> going to lead up to Now, you. hold on. That was a
2: practical effect.
1: <laughs> hey, you're spoiling everything. Sorry, you got to you got to calm down. All right. Um <laughs> I get excited
2: when I think about oatmeal carpet. <laughs>
1: We gotta lead up to that. Oh, so you, tasty. You spoiled the payoff. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's our dessert.
0: <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. I think Snails got into it, though. So. He did. That's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. But the CGI. Um,
1: it was awful.
0: It was
2: 2000.
1: Okay. So that was the same year <laughs> that Lord of the Rings came out
2: and, yeah. and
1: Harry Potter.
2: The first one?
1: Yeah. I and, mean, and The Cell, which was really cool. Awkward. I mean,
2: we're, let's talk about budget, though. I mean... Okay,
1: so to be fair, all of those movies probably had a higher budget. Actually,
2: I'm not sure. This movie apparently had a $45 million budget. I don't know how that ranks compared to the others.
0: I could probably make pretty good graphics with that amount of money. You think so? But yeah.
1: apparently, um, I mean, a good portion of that budget probably went to... Mr Irons who needed to pay off his castle anyway.
2: Yeah, that's true. He did th- <laughs> he did this movie cuz he just bought a castle. I mean, that, that's legit. That's, you know, straight from uh, the horse's
0: I mouth. I just
1: imagined him thinking of that every time he was putting way too much emphasis on every single line that he was giving. Yep.
0: <laughs> we just liked to imagine him walking through mm-hmm. his freshly bought castle, res- like, practicing his villain voice. Just, <laughs> ah, yes, now you die! <laughs> It just echoes through the entire place because he's alone. He's just giggling. He's like, "Yeah, that was good."
1: Oh, <laughs> okay, so I I should be pretty cool. Yeah, I
0: yeah.
2: guess <laughs> as, a, as a point of comparison, um, it looks like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or the Philosopher's Stone, if you're uh, an English listener or a European oh, listener, had a budget of 130 million. So D and D only had 45. Whoa. So they weren't working with the with the big guns that Lord of the Rings and and these other movies had. So.
1: Apparently, it costs about the same amount to pay people to do uh, computer-generated graphics or to do practical.
2: I've heard that, but that might be a more modern... I don't don't know. I'm not sure if that was the case back then or not. Right.
1: I don't know, but if that is true, I, I know that doing CGI takes a long time to get it right. I mean they didn't spend long enough on it, but um <laughs> so there how can that that you kinda take away the time argument that could be brought up for going with CGI over practical effects. Like the movies that do that where it looks really good is where you have a blending of the two and I think they should have done that, especially for those poor dragons. I
2: mean, I think the problem was and I understand the director had of vision. Obviously, this director had a vision for this movie of this final scene where dragons... The sky is just lousy with dragons. And that would have been... I don't think they could have done that with practical. I think that had
1: no. to be...
2: I think that had to be the, um, the Windows 95 screensaver effects that we got.
1: So how does this all come back around to a carpet, you say? Well, here it is. I think that they spent a lot of their budget that would have been spent on CGI, making this carpet out of, that's quicksand.
2: Really? You think that that was, (laughs) you think that all the money went into uh, oatmeal carpet? So
1: this is in Damodar's living quarters.
2: Yeah. Where he keeps his armor. At the foot of his bed.
1: Yeah. He just I don't know what I don't wanna know what he uses it for. But um
2: <laughs> uh, he it, uses it to trap thieves who break in because he <laughs> lives in a highly stratified society with outstanding income disparity. It's a trap, right. it's breakfast, and it's decorations. Yeah.
1: So so we're saying this because it was um it's nice. supposed to be a quicksand pit. Painted at the top to look like a woven carpet. And it was actually pretty cool looking.
0: Very yes. convincing. You um, can't really tell when you're looking at it, actually. Yeah. And then. At least in the long shots.
1: When mm-hmm. Snails. Um, what's the actor's name again? Marlon Wayne. Marlon Wayne's. Of
2: Wayne's Brothers fame. Yeah. Show Steps I used to watch all the it. time.
1: He starts sinking in immediately, and the design gets all warped, and that part looks really neat, too. And then when he's thrashing around in it, you can clearly tell that it's a huge vat of oatmeal.
2: (laughs) Delicious and nutritious. Yep, and
1: in the Made even more delicious after he's been in there.
2: It's true. (laughs) Marinated. Yes.
1: Um, I, he gets killed shortly after, spoilers, he gets killed shortly after that scene.
2: That is a major tone shift for a movie that has been very light-hearted up it's to that slapstick part. Slapstick,
1: kind of. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's treated so unceremoniously. I mean, the main, his friend, Ridley, does break down and he gets very sad and he's crying and, like, mad. So but see, that's you, like you a see, trope. You see that reaction, but, like... The villain just tosses his body
2: unceremoniously. I yeah, but I mean that is a trope to kill off a a character just to be a way but they to
1: killed off the African American character. Yeah, I was gonna say just to kind of like have him... Um, an intense moment for the main white character.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's usually in a lot of movies, it's killing off the main character's wife or girlfriend or something. It's a it's a bad trope. But
0: they were bad such
2: good friends, though. It did Honest, make it
0: very tragic.
2: Honestly, I mean, Marlon Wayne should have been the main character of this movie. I mean, th- for this time period and everything, he should have been the he should have been the lead. Yeah. This movie should have been his story. It would have made way more sense, just for how popular the
0: Wayans brothers
2: were at this time and everything.
0: Yeah. And we talked about it in the Hercules episode, how the trope of killing off the love interest, and I it did not work in Hercules, I don't think, as well as it did in this. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. In this, like, I think, just like, their friendship was pretty, was pretty cool to watch, actually. And... It really feels more genuine than Hercules, because at the end, the final scene in this film, they shot it in two different ways. Right. Right. But it's Ridley visiting a graveyard, and he's going to Snails' grave, Dave. which looks different than all the other ones. All the other ones are nice, traditional style
1: tombstones. Yeah,
0: but Ridley has like these rocks stacked on top of each other. Snails does, I mean. And uh, it says snails on the top rock, and it's carved into it. In the original filming, it's just Ridley visiting the grave, saying, like, Oh, buddy, uh, before I get knighted, I wanted to come, like, say, like, We did it, buddy. We're heroes. And uh, it's really nice.
1: And he leaves him the ruby.
0: Yeah, he leaves him the the eye of the dragon. Which was how he that got... Last that last score
2: that Snails was always looking for, man.
0: It's true. He left it for him. And he walks Somebody's away... Somebody's stealing
2: that shit, by the way. Yeah, true. it's like, true. It's <laughs> true. Yeah.
0: But it's very sweet because then he walks away and he was out there by himself, which was a nice moment. But, uh...
1: It seemed... With him there alone, it just seemed more personal.
0: Yeah. More genuine and kind yeah. of. So that was the cut ending. The but the it, actual it was ending
1: was the original one they shot I think
0: yes right but the one that they stuck with
1: is the second version
0: yes where ridley is there and so's the rest of the gang they're all there and ridley's pretty much the only one talking i think he is the only one talking cuz he gave a very real like realis- realistic heartfelt speech And everyone else was just kind of, like, making sad faces and nodding in agreement. And then the lettering on the stone that says snails starts to fade away. And
2: the crystal, or the the ruby, starts to glow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, the mage, Marina, is like, oh, what's that? And then Norda's like, oh my gosh. And Elwood is like, could it be? (laughs) And then, like... These golden rays shine on them, and they turn into these balls of red light as they fuse with, like, the eye of the dragon, and they float up toward the sun, like, through the trees, and it's kind of implied that, like, something is, like, pulling them on a quest to save snails from well, does, the
2: afterlife. Doesn't Marina or one of them say it explicitly, that, like, snails must... His spirit must still be out there or something, like, going yes. to them? Yeah.
0: Yes, that's right. It's definitely a... <laughs> they were
2: setting up a sequel. Yes. That never... I mean, there is a sequel to this movie, but...
0: Yeah, it's definitely... They came to the conclusion that snails can be saved, and that was a very strange way of doing it in a Dungeons & Dragons setting, which has resurrection spells. Right. Well, unless divine magic is banned in their kingdom. It's true, but they did meet a druid, which has different reincarnation Reincarnation. I mean, we
2: don't know what form he'd come back in.
0: Yeah, it's true. All right, well, I
2: mean, I think we've gotten really deep into this movie. Uh, I think it's time for us... As always to give this movie a rating and naturally the only rating system good enough for swords and satire is how many swords out of ten you're going to give this movie and remember that half ratings are short swords um, I guess quarter ratings are daggers but I don't know if you want to get that nuance um, so Chelsea do you want to go first
1: sure um, I enjoyed the way that the characters in this movie really did seem like the kind of murder hobos and uh, munchkins. munchkins that player characters might actually create. Um, so I think in that way, it, the film was kind of enjoyable. Also, the way that the adventuring party comes together is it's unusual. So that was creative. And I enjoyed that. Um, I will give it a five and a half. That's five swords with a short, one short sword. All right. <laughs> um, and I, it's getting a middling rating for all of the uh, racist and sexist uh, aspects of the movie.
0: Totally fair.
1: Yeah.
0: Jack? So, the acting I thought was very fun. It wasn't realistic, but it definitely fits with, like a real group I could imagine playing with that group of people and I'm sure you have to some extent <laughs> it's true it's true and I think it's funny just the way they have to interact with the world cause clearly they don't fully understand it like the honor amongst thieves thing and that's just like the DM <laughs> just being like you guys are making a lot of assumptions about my setting <laughs> but uh so uh, maybe I'll give it uh seven swords and a short sword and a dagger and a kitchen knife and a butter knife repeating forever
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right, very good, so, I guess it's my turn um you know, this movie had a few um a few problems, obviously I mean, it didn't necessarily explore all of its themes in enough depth we didn't get the the detailed uh, information about like the world building as far as the politics of the world that you know Chelsea really wanted to see and a lot of the other um you know just the little details that like a really like top tier must watch yeah. film would have like a real art house movie would have a little bit more of that uh, nuance and subtlety but you know i think that they really did a lot with what they have. Uh, I would have liked to have seen more representation of the classic D&D fantasy races. I would have liked to have seen a little bit less um, negative interaction between uh, some of these different characters. Mm -hmm. But I think that they were trying to set the stage for conflict that would get resolved through the story arcs and everything. And as the characters developed over time... So I would have liked to have seen a little bit more representation of some of the the flavor that makes D&D interesting, um, maybe a little bit clearer correlation between uh, D&D classes. You know, obviously this is a story about class struggle, but the D&D classes are a little muddy in here. I mean, Ridley seems more like a swashbuckler fighter type, and he also has some skills. I mean, obviously he could be multi but I would have liked a little bit more definition. I liked the inclusion of spells from D&D. And there's a great line where Marina says that she would have to cast a feeble mind spell on herself to uh, be attracted to Ridley or something. That was I, great. I really appreciated those little nods. Um, I just I wanted them to do more with the property. I would have liked to have seen more. That being said, for having uh, for making some of the bold choices they made and for um... Kind of delving into these topics that I think a lot of movies kind of shy away from, like class struggle and and racism and stuff. I, I'm going to give this movie um, six swords and a short sword. I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed watching it with you guys. Um, I think that it's it's definitely one that our uh, our listeners should go out and check out if they haven't been watching it. You know, every month regularly like they mm-hmm. probably should be, um, because it is a, uh, a an important text in the fantasy genre. Um, but yeah, uh, six and a half is going to be what I'm going to go with. Nice. I
1: want to second that uh, watching these movies is part of... With you and our other guests, if we get them, Are uh, it's one of my favorite parts about watching these movies is watching it with you guys. Mm-hmm. And um, also... Just getting to talk about it with you like this, it's it's one of the things I look forward to every week.
0: Oh. So, yeah. I do too. Yeah. It makes the movies so much better than they would be otherwise. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think these movies could be any better. It's true, you're right. And it's fun to hang out with you guys. Well, of yeah, course. that yes. part's great.
2: Also that's the frosting on the delicious pumpkin. Uh, Buttercream cupcake. It's
0: true, and though we do kind of joke and poke at these movies, the old joke and poke. I I think
2: <laughs> I, I think joke and poke might have another kind of I don't. That, I don't yeah. know what
0: you're talking
2: about. is not they go into a uh, comedy show and then having sex in the car in the back?
0: You got it. You know. <laughs> but. Uh, I'm sure the people who worked on the films would be happy to know we're thinking about the 2000 D&D movie this much. Putting this much thought into it. Yeah. Yeah. Because we are treating it like it's art. Because it is. Because it is art. It's low fantasy, but high (laughs) (laughs) art. I'd also like to point out that that feeble mind... Oh. The line she has is so savage. <laughs> she cast Scorching
2: Ray <laughs> with that line. It's true. <laughs> because Ridley was burned.
1: Yo, you just got burned super hard right
2: Well, um. On that note, I think it's time for us to rewrite some history. This is the segment where we determine uh, whether we're going to reboot this movie or make a sequel. Reduce, reuse, recycle. That's right. Reduce, reuse, resurrect, recycle. I think recycle. this nice.
1: movie deserves a reboot. Okay. Um, a different point of view, and you know what I would like to see is our boy the druid elf uh, cleric character, Dr- yeah. yes. Uh, who's the heal like stoner healer
2: of yes.
1: that elf clan?
2: Oh, you want to see the story from from the elven perspective? Yeah, interesting. Ooh. Interesting.
1: And see like what troubles they're dealing with in the. Forests and caves that they live in, and
2: yeah, they kind of do that usual elven cop out in this movie where like the elves are just kind of distant and mysterious, man. So, like, don't ask too many questions about them. And the
1: characters just go visit Mm -hmm. them to like get healed, regroup, get some more supplies, and like to get some sweet gifts, and then like peace out. And um, you don't get to spend any time there, you don't get to see what their agendas are and how they fit into the world, really. And I thought that part of the movie was one of the most interesting. And I wanted to, like, see more about their society and hear more their philosophy about the world. Because that's where you get some of the best lore. mm mm-hmm. From world. the elves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that makes sense for elves in a fantasy sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of times they have a bonus to history checks, right? Mm-hmm.
1: But They're old. you could we could learn something about, more about the world if we, like, retold this story from their perspective and maybe even had... Other teams of elves out looking for this artifact so that they could hold it and keep it away from the humans.
2: I think it would have been. I think it would be good to get some more perspective from Norda, who's kind of the most understated character of the whole movie. We get a lot of, you know, the other characters are very talkative. I mean, and obviously they're trying to do like the stoic elf thing, but I would like to get some more of her internal monologue. I think thinking about where you know she's. You know, they say that uh, still waters run deep, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And. yes she mentioned that she's like 246 years old in the movie or something like that you know what i'd like to see is a little bit of the movie maybe some flashbacks of her growing up in that uh like forest stronghold of the elves and like see her meeting another elf woman like they become a, a couple and like her adventures like becoming going into the rangers like the ranger scouts for the elves that kind of keep the forest safe and like she and her girlfriend are in the rangers together or something like that mm. and it's like part of every character has to have a tragic backstory from <laughs> D. So it's part of her tragic backstory. Is like something happens to that or something happens to the relationship. Maybe.
0: parents die immediately. Immediately.
2: <laughs> immediately. <laughs> Every great hero is an orphan. We know that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, It sounds
2: like you're channeling a character from one of our D&D campaigns that we played in the past.
1: Maybe. Oh yeah. I am. I didn't realize it. <laughs> well, thank you, Mickey. <laughs> yeah. Shout out. Shout out. Yeah. Um, Hey,
2: great writers borrow from great writers.
1: Yeah, so I think it would be really interesting to um, see the movie from Norder's point of view. I
2: like it. I think that's great. I I think that that would give us uh, a a new perspective on it. I think um, she's one of the more interesting characters that doesn't get a lot of time to, to share her personality and her feelings.
1: You know what we never really got in this movie that would have made a lot of sense is a heist. So uh um, Yes. You could turn you could make it into a heist movie.
2: They kinda of do a shorthand for heist with the, the Thieves Guild thing, but
1: Yeah, okay. it fell real flat.
2: Yeah. No absolutely. I think I think I mean every great
0: movie needs a heist, right? That's it's true, it's true. That's a satire. ...stamp of approval if you have a well-planned-out heist in a movie.
2: Oh, yeah, especially with, like, narration over
0: it. Yeah. Oh. It's true. (laughs) But, uh, yes, I would like to see an elf-based plot with Norda. And I would actually like to see if, in the future, post this movie... ...if Norda was back with the elves and Elwood, who was essentially homeless goes to live with her actually and is amongst elf society because as far as dwarves go he's actually personality wise though he has a lot of habits that fit the dwarf stereotype emotionally he's very open That's and kind of soft yeah and so he might be able to learn how to deal with that in a healthy way from the emotionally mature druid elves and so He and Norda growing closer would actually be very interesting. And in the next movie, Norda has some sort of plot she needs to progress. And Elwood and her are already buddies because they've lived together for a number of years. And then we see she needs the help of a group. And she gets back together, the group from this film. And they could have already resolved the issue with getting Snails back.
2: Oh, I'd love if if our sequel brings back Marlon Wayans yes. a, in
0: this iconic role. Yeah, and Snails is a bit more of like an honorable fighter and he's kind of gotten over the kleptomaniac sort of thing now that he's liked in society and treated as an equal.
2: But maybe he still has that little part of him that, that's always still kind of... Roguish. Roguish, yeah. yeah. He's mischievous. He's always, he's always eyeing something like...
1: Oh, He's, He's is gotta keep that childlike mischievous glare. Exactly. He's such a
0: butterfly. You know, he no his personality is so vibrant, you couldn't ever suppress that. But Ridley, I'd love to see him come back as a cleric from that side quest. <laughs> when he when he saved snails.
2: After they've overthrown the evil empress who's been repressing divine magic.
0: Sure. And he though he was the main character of the last one has had his character growth especially now that he's a paladin probably of the crown maybe devotion but he is there to take on a more supportive role in Norda's quest where we really get some growth from her she kind of learns to drop the stoicism a little bit with the help of her emotionally I don't want to say soft, but, you know... Expressive. Expressive dwarf. I mean,
2: Elwood states in clear terms in the movie, most dwarves are you know, not good at expressing their emotions, but that's not me. Yeah. That yeah. is one of the most complex character choices in this film.
1: That was actually really interesting. He said, I'm comfortable sharing my emotions. Yeah, and yeah. he starts crying.
0: So yeah. he and Norta could learn a lot from mm-hmm. each other. Yeah, it's true. You see, they would be a really interesting character duo. And then to see how the other he characters He
1: could help her open up more, them. and she could help him become more tolerant of other races.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And if he lived amongst the elves and smoked a lot of trans-dimensional would <laughs>
1: he
0: would he'd surely develop that. I know that's Pathfinder, but I don't know the D&D equivalent. I don't know the D&D equivalent. Close it off.
1: Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: But uh. Yeah, that would awesome. be a really
1: great movie.
2: I'm, I'm in. Uh, let's go ahead and get um the listeners to start donating to the uh, Patreon so we can make this happen, mm-hmm. right? That's, yeah. That's yes. what we're doing with that money, right? Yes. Exactly. Patreon. Alright, well, uh, I think our next segment that we always go into is uh, maybe not going to work (laughs) super great for this movie because we already kind of know what class these characters are. For the most part, we've talked about it. But uh, can you roleplay this? Um, I think the bigger question here is who are the player types who would play each of these characters?
1: I think that if uh, Norda, the elf... um was a player character um then it would probably be a player who prefers to be a watcher
2: yeah definitely who
1: wants to participate in key moments and knows the details of their character but prefers to kind of watch as things unfold in in the interactions in story definitely Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: my buddy charlie said That if you're playing a quiet, stoic character, you don't just not say anything. You just kind of narrate your expressions and, like, your stature and how you present yourself Mm non-verbally. And it's a way for you to still communicate and roleplay really effectively without having your character be very talkative.
1: That's a really good point.
0: Yeah because I've considered playing not talkative characters before but have not known how to approach it And <laughs> but you're
2: such a wallflower
0: I know <laughs> But yeah all my characters that are supposed to be serious end up being like heart of the party very friendly characters <laughs> who are like the glue and I fear for a world where that character doesn't exist in the games I play in, they would <laughs> fall yeah. apart but uh, yeah I think Norda's player character is definitely someone who understands how to convey character through body language
2: yeah Ridley's definitely the, the DM's uh, like younger sibling whoever's playing Ridley I mean Human fighter, like they're trying to get their, you know, younger brother or sister into D and D, but like they don't, they don't know all the stuff yet, so they're like, okay, let me give you the most basic class. But you know, you get to be the faded character because you're my, you know, you're my little bud and, and everything. So they kind of like get a lot thrust on them that they haven't necessarily. But like, everybody built up else to. is there
1: to kind of support them to kind of help ease them into the whole role playing. Yeah, wow. I
0: love that. And wow. then they World. flourish throughout the game. Because mm-hmm. there's one point at the end of the film where Ridley gets his hands on the evil dragon scepter. And he is clearly making will saves, not oh, to yeah. be turned evil. He's got this insane manic grin on his face. And you see him, like, clenching and flexing. And he's he like, uh, clearly understands the power he holds. And he's, like, thinking about succumbing to it and controlling the dragons. And it takes him, like, a solid 10 or 15 seconds to pull himself slowly out of it. And that's definitely a sign of, like, the, the person has learned how to roleplay really effectively, and they love their character
2: now. Is that the person roleplaying, or is that the person playing Ridley going, oh, I'm going to turn evil on you part on the party now, and
0: everyone's like, no, that's not what Ridley would do. I considered that, but went for the wholesome option because I okay. want to believe in that world more. <laughs> okay, that's fair. But I could see both. You gotta. I play with too many people in real life who are like, what if my character goes evil? If this <laughs> happens, my character would so go dark side, this is what it would take for me to go dark side. Okay, okay. Well, I'll let you roleplay this scenario. Anyway. <laughs> it's true. I just want to believe in that. I think the dwarf, though, Elwood, mm-hmm. their player. Is someone who's a, like a memer. And they're like, I think it's funny to be the stupid, loud, drunk dwarf. Oh. And they m- always make fun it's so of him. Yes. But then when <laughs> other people make fun of the dwarf too much, they didn't like it. They were like, <laughs> no, I make fun of it. And they're like, oh, stupid, drunk dwarf. Oh, what are you, angry? He's like, no. I just feel things strongly, and that actually forced them to develop more character when other people made fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that, right. that's what got them the most into it, when the jokes started being on them rather so than... So you're saying
1: them. they're a munchkin turned actor. Yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> I, mean, I think I think uh, Snails' player is more the munchkin.
1: Yeah. Just like, yes. I
2: grabbed this. Uh okay, I also grabbed that. Is there gold here? I grab that. Oh, there's a, a a opposite you know, a different gendered character over there. I'm gonna uh hit on that person.
1: Oh, there's a it's... huge dragon tooth that I clearly am not strong enough to carry. I'm gonna grab it anyway. Yeah, and so to <laughs> all Dude, you
0: guys are so right. And there's a scene where he's talking to Norda and he's like he's like flirting with her and she's he's like, I know I'm only twenty-three. And that's pretty young for you elves, but I don't mind. I'll drink an uh, I'll drink an aging potion for you. I don't Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, I total was munchkin. so peak munchkin. Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, I was thinking Elwood the dwarf is more of an actor. Player, mm-hmm. Um who might be a, personally like an absurdist. You
2: know? Yeah. Yeah, very performative, but fun for the yeah. most
1: part, that's true. And um, for Marina the mage, I was thinking they might be kind of like a storyteller. And rules lawyer mixed together, which is kind <laughs> yeah. of like an odd mix. De-
2: no, definitely, that's so perfect.
1: Yeah, because uh, sh- she's constantly trying to push the story along with everything she does, and and try- and any deviation just gets her frustrated. <laughs>
0: she's like the power gamer. Yeah, you're. Yeah, like-
1: and uh, but she's very like she's a stickler for the rules throughout the whole thing. It's
0: true. I cuz there there was so much cheese that happened in the world in the story that i bet out of game she was just like, "Oh, I want to cast uh, like chain lightning," and the DM is like, "Okay," and they're like, "Oh wait, I don't have my components pouch." And the DM didn't even remember that that required components. <laughs> and so they would have just okayed it, but she was like, "No, I can't do it. I don't have the components for yeah, this." Yeah, that's
2: true. She's definitely sticking to the rules. She's not the type of player who's always like, "Oh, well, of course I have my components. Like she's she's sticking to the guns of,
0: "Well, I didn't have it, so I can't I can't do it." Yeah, I appreciate that in some settings some of the more brutal survivalist settings mm-hmm. uh, and then there's some games where I'm like yeah just cast your spells
1: because the story is more important yeah yeah, that as, makes sense yeah
0: as a DM I just like to have my players sometimes go to an herbal herb shop and buy like components that would kind of work for most spells like berries for a druid can be very versatile
1: yeah, yeah, not so. every
0: DM wants to
2: track every single, you know,
0: yeah.
2: uh, guano pouch and, uh, <laughs> like, broken twig that, you know, was broken by an elf under the moonlight. Yes,
0: oh, I love those components. That's so great. You need, a an oct- like, an octopus's ink sack worth at least 8,000 gold. And you're like, oh, do they even get that expensive? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh,
0: man. Yeah. Nice.
1: Yeah, I think we nailed them all really well. Yeah,
2: of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this movie nailed it. We had to bring it. Mm-hmm.
1: So Yeah.
2: Well, there you go, everybody. Uh, another episode in the bag. Um, obviously, we had a lot of things to say about this movie. If you have things that you want to tell us that you think about this movie, go ahead and uh, shoot us a message and let's talk about Dungeons & Dragons because... God knows that's what we're going to be doing after we shut off the recorders here. So yes. until next time, Hail, Hail Chrome!